0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Nairi is a singer-songwriter. Nairi's based in Australia now, but she's grown up all over the region, in New Zealand and in Papua New Guinea, where she went to school on the volcanic island of Rabaul. Family and culture and music were all a large part of her early life, and it was family that came to the rescue. In 1994, when the earth in Rabaul, began to tremble below her feet. And then a volcano exploded nearby, throwing out ash and lava. And then a second volcano erupted, and everyone had to get out as fast as they could. Nairi's early life wasn't always quite so volcanic. Some of her happiest memories come from visiting the eastern highlands of Papua New Guinea, the ancestral home of her family at the top of a mountain nairi is blessed as a musician with a heavenly soulful voice and her music seems to come from both the future and from the deep past of those ancestral family spirits Hi, Nairi.
0: Hi. You're really good at this.
1: (laughs) I've had a bit of practice. (laughs) Thank you.
0: (laughs) You're welcome.
1: That little bit of song we just heard is called Shiver and that's about your grandmother. Mm. Tell me about that mountainous region in Papua New Guinea where she was from.
0: Mm. My family are from the Warabung region. Um, So Goroka is the main township in the eastern highlands. So if you travel further up, the mountain on the way to Mount Hagen, you'll hit a place called Warabung. It takes you about two days to reach the top of the summit and then down again. But it's just the most magical place I've ever been to, just mountainous flora and it's hugged by clouds. And people are still living in grass huts up there. You know, there's still a lot of subsistence farming and things are still pretty intact up there, which I always appreciate and love um, going back there. So it's a pretty spectacular part of PNG, I would say. Not many people know that there is this just this mountainous ecosystem and it it reaches high altitudes. I mean, the highest peak in the highlands is uh, Mount Willem and sometimes it even snows up there as well. So, yeah, it's truly magical, really magical.
1: What did you know about your ancestors when you were growing up who lived on this
0: mountain? I remember my mother telling me about her grandfather, so my great-grandfather. And he was a chief. His name was Um uh, My son's middle name is named after him. And he had three wives and he was what they call the mouseman of the village. So basically, the you know, he had the voice of a leader... Or a spokesperson, or someone important, and people—I mean, Highlanders in general—are are known in PNG as very stubborn, <laughs> very stubborn, almost pig-headed people. But that—that's definitely benefited me as being part Highlander on my journey in the music industry because I just—I just very persistent um, with my journey as a as an artist, but. What I remember of my ancestors, I mean, that's it's all stories that have been passed down by my grandmother and my and my mom, and it's definitely Lofunokuwe, if we're talking about ancestors. He's the one that I remember the most about him being a leader and being this really strong, stately chief of our tribe. So yeah, I guess the thing that that comes back to me is just the pride that comes with being a part of this particular tribe.
1: Tell me the story of how your mother came into the world,
0: please, Lara. (laughs) My grandmother, you know, she was a bit of a firecracker herself. (laughs) Uh, Just one night, just before my mum was born, she was by herself and she remembers being surrounded by ancestors that had passed on uh, who knew that she was about to give birth to my mum and my grandmother literally gave birth to my mum by herself like a full monster of a woman and cleaned herself up and in the morning when the rest of the family woke up, she was like, meet your new sister.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So you have these epic family stories in in your background. How old were you when you first made your first visit up that mountain,
0: Nairi? I would have been anywhere between 13, 14. Most of my interaction with my family was on my dad's side and my mum was very adamant that we'd have more of a... Tolai upbringing. So my father is from Rabaul, and the people from Rabaul are called Tolais, and hold very high positions of of power in politics and that kind of stuff. So mum was like, okay, we need to bring the children up. They need to know this this side of their heritage as as well as as a focus point. So at one point she said to one of her brothers, my daddy say, take the kids up to where they come from and and let them see where they come from. And, you know, we don't only ever heard stories about our family up in the mountains and what it was like. And so it was really exciting and exhilarating to be sent off without our, like, parental (laughs) guidance, just with our uncle, who was the most playful uncle I've ever had, just really cheeky and childlike.
1: So this was a real adventure then for you and your siblings? Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. It was a a full adventure because all we'd ever known was coastal life, you know, the white sandy beaches and the palm trees and that kind of stuff. This was a this was a polar opposite to what we'd experienced um, growing up in Rabao. So, you know, we get to the bottom of the mountain and, you know, as you ascend further up, it gets cooler and the climate drops and the vegetation changes. There's not many coconut trees up there. And then we just kept meeting people along the way saying, oh, I'm related to you in this form, you know, ten times removed or three times removed. And my uncle would know all of these people and try to explain to us where they fit in in the family tree. So it was, a, like you said, it was a real adventure. There was just flowing freshwater rivers everywhere, just the tallest trees you'd ever see, flowers that I'd never seen. You know, there were goats everywhere. Just a complete contrast to the coast.
1: And what was the village like when you arrived there?
0: The village in the Highlands, you have a lot of red earth, and so you'd have forest area and then you'd have a clearing where it would be, I guess, a more built up area where they'd have huts everywhere and there'd be a main hut where people would have their village meetings. And then there'd be a full a full clearing in the middle of these huts of just dirt where kids could play or women could just sit and, you know, weave their bilum bags. But there was always just like this low rumble of people talking. There's a lot of there's a lot of storytelling, you know, because now things like smartphones and Facebook and social media are seeping into village life. Really? Even though there's mm. not mm. much yeah, even though there's not much electricity there, people entertain themselves by staying up to date with what's happening in the community, by telling stories and just sitting around and for want of a better word, shooting the shit, you know? And <laughs> It's a, it's a very conversational culture. There's a lot of chatter. So we could hear that all the way up the mountain, just people talking and that low murmur of conversation. And because Papua New Guinea, especially in the village areas in the highlands, word travels really fast, you know, almost as fast as, as an email. And so word would have travelled up the mountain before us telling people that Miriam's children were heading up the mountain for the first time. And so... People in the community would would say, you know, you can use my hut or that hut or whatever, I've got this hut sitting there, or I'll go stay with my brother or my cousin and you guys can use the hut. So we would stay in these little grass huts with which are just the most cosy houses ever. I mean, they're thatched roofs with woven, I call them flax walls, and then in the centre would be the fire where you're cooking and all your storytelling would happen around this fire and then you would sleep on a kind of mezzanine Level around the fire. So it was one of our first experiences sleeping in something like that. And, you know, as kids, it was better than camping.
1: The way you're talking, it sounds like it was really comforting too, even though it was all so unfamiliar.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, now even when I smell a fire, if I'm having a down day, my husband, he makes a fire outside. So if I'm waking up, if I've had a bad day and I'm w- waking up in the morning, he makes a fire in the morning so I can smell it. And it literally just takes me back home and I, Something about it, something about smells that just connect you. Obviously, it's scientifically proven as well, but connects you back home. Oh yeah, yeah. Just always seek comfort with fire because it was such a central. It is such a central part to PNG living, no matter where you go.
1: Some of the best coffee in the world is made in that part of the world. Is it a big coffee drinking area too? You're getting you're getting tons of coffee while you're up there.
0: That's an interesting question because the culture of coffee drinking isn't the same with say you know Australia New, Ze- New Zealand it's pretty standard you know if you're having coffee in the morning it's just black coffee with a sugar and if you're lucky some milk and that's pretty much it but there's no i guess culture around that it's just the culture is really about the growers um, and the agriculture surrounding
1: it. So that was the village at the base of the mountain and you were expected to to go on a kind of... I don't know if pilgrimage is the right word, Nari, but some kind of a journey up the the, the mountain, you and your siblings. When it was time to do that, what did you take up with you?
0: I would say we took some warmer clothes. All I can remember is that I would have taken a diary and a raw Dahl book because I was such a... I was a huge bookworm when I was younger, I just... You know, kid, uh, parents have problems with dragging their children away from TVs now, and I, I had that problem. But with books, I loved when my mum sent me to my room because if I was being naughty, because all I did was pull out a book and go, "Huh, this is great. I'm just gonna sit here and read my book."
1: So, when you're heading up the mountain on that on that journey up the mountain, does the landscape change as you go up?
0: Definitely. You'd reach like a clearing where, you know, what they call a house line. A house line is like community of houses where a family or a tribe live. And so you would get up there and you would just see miles and miles of kow I mean, sweet potato gardens, we called sweet potato kow or just like taro gardens, or all these beautiful flowers are so hugging the gardens, you'd probably see a like a marijuana plot um, somewhere <laughs> in the corner. And I started to recognize flowers that I'd never seen down on the coast before. And Things looked a little bit more sparklier and fresher, and you could smell that mountain air. And people seem to move slower as well. You know there's always stuff to do in the village. You've got to go and chop your firewood and bring it back and make sure you've got food to feed your family. And there might be a village court case happening, and most sometimes people go down to you know sticky beak and see what's happening, who did this to who. You know there's always this sense of slowness. Um, as you got higher up in the mountain of people just, you know, going on with their day, but in a very slow pace. So
1: when you went up the mountain, like I was saying, with your siblings, was that exciting or scary? I mean, you're told that there's a bunch of, you know, ancient ancestral spirits up there. It
0: was exhilarating. I remember scaling this mountain with my uncle and he was like, okay, we're going to go right to the top where uh, Lof was buried, which is my great grandfather. And my brother and i were just like so uncle is are there going to be any like can do you think you can show us some spirits or like some you know crazy what they call knock on d um do you think knock on d is going to be up there and my uncle would be like you just wait okay if we're up here it's like if you're up here long enough and it gets dark I'll i'll introduce you to some of them <laughs> Me and my brother were just like, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. <laughs> so
1: was this meant as a kind of an initiation? And, and if it was, has that changed you, do you think?
0: Oh, yeah. It ignited or reignited a love for that side of my family that needed to be woken up because we'd had, like I said before, we'd had so much to do with my dad's side of the family, but Highlanders really wear their hearts on their sleeves and children to them is just more precious than gold and so uncles and aunties we don't call our aunties and uncles auntie and uncle they're more like this is my mum so you'd say my son would call my sister mama Ruthie as opposed to auntie Ruth so you have this really close extended family you know because they say it takes a village to raise a kid and that's certainly still what it is like in the highlands where your uncles are your father's and your aunties are your mothers, and your your grandmother's sisters are still your grandmothers. And so that was something that I never truly felt in the New Guinea Islands. You know, you still had your aunties and uncles, but I never really felt that real closeness of, okay, we're all going to take care of each other. And, you know, if your cousins come and stay with you, then your mum becomes their mum, and they take care of you like you were their own. And I found that really interesting. And I don't know whether it's to do with the rate at which uh, colonisation reached these areas, but that's something that I really loved because I'd come from a broken home. I just all of a sudden knew that I had this family that I could rely on, and that was really special to me.
1: Your mum, is you said, is from the eastern highlands of New Guinea and your dad was from Rabaul. That's quite a long way away. How did they meet each other?
0: They met while they are at uni, so Unitech in Ley. They were part of a crop of Papua New Guineans at that time in the 70s, 60s, 70s when PNG was going through a really critical transition into independence from the Australian administration. So my parents were part of a generation of kids that were the first, a lot of them were the first of their families to have reached that level of education. So there was a lot of expectation for them to really make a success for themselves. So a lot of them went on to high offers in, in certain organisations and are still, you know, really striving in whatever areas they've gone to. But both my parents met in that time. It was the start of people in different regions and t- different tribes intermarrying, which never really happened that much before.
1: Was it unusual for a woman to be educated at university in those days? Who wanted her to have that education?
0: So my grandmother, she couldn't read or write, although she was the biggest baller I've ever, ever met. And Unfortunately, my grandfather, who was a policeman, just didn't value women and women getting an education. And so he poured all this money into getting his three boys educated. And my grandmother took it upon herself to try to put my mum through school. And so somehow she managed to collect as much money as she could, whether it's from asking other family members or from Playing cards and winning a bet or something. She. Wow,
1: really? <laughs> That's impressive. Oh yeah, she was.
0: She was what they call um, in Tokpisi, and they say if they say, "Oh, where's Aina?" They're like, "Oh, I'm gonna play cards." So it means that <laughs> she went off, and they were, you know, obviously it's gambling. You know, <laughs> she right, was. Right.
1: Are you was... any good at that <laughs> <laughs> if you ever want to if you ever suggest a friendly game of cards I want to be on my metal a bit <laughs> if,
0: you,
1: if your grandmother earned enough to put your mum through uni from card playing that's pretty impressive
0: yeah I know no she was a gun yeah. at it she' was very very good at it so <laughs> she was our boss I'm telling you she was such a boss um
1: right so there was a real weight of expectation on both of them and particularly on your mum under those circumstances then to sort of get the education sure. and be a high achiever in the in for post-colonial society. Sure. Post- and New Guinea then.
0: Mm.
1: So your family moved to New Zealand at that point. and, and this is when, this is when you got ill, Nairi. How old were you when you got ill?
0: I was diagnosed when I was three, um, and then three. I yes, and then I, I, I think I started heavy treatment when I was five.
1: What were you diagnosed with?
0: I was diagnosed with cancer of the adrenal gland, so it was a cancer called ganglioneuroblastoma.
1: Oh, that sounds horrible. That's like the worst name.
0: I know, doesn't it? Um, But it was a spring-like tumour in my left adrenal gland, which they had to remove my left adrenal gland as well.
1: So you were just a little kid, the littlest kid when that happened. It's it's really hard to even ask you these questions because it's just a... Awful thought, and you got kids now too. Yeah, your parents must have been so distressed. And-
0: Look, I mean, they also had the pressure of because my we went over to New Zealand because my father got a scholarship to study cartography, and his our time there, the scholarship was running out, and then they just discovered that I had cancer. And for the longest time, I mean, my mum knew something was wrong. She uh, she went to a bunch of GPs who all told her that I had worms and put me on some deworming tablets. And that didn't change my symptoms, which I was having the runs and it just continued. And then finally she found out I had cancer. And so around that time, when I went in for my operations, she was pregnant with my my little sister, Ruth. Um, I remember my father, my mum would tell me that my dad, Ben would faint a lot of the time seeing all of these um tubes hooked up to me um and my mom had to run from the maternity ward over to pediatrics back and forth and back and forth and my sister actually um knew something was wrong she stopped um breastfeeding and even like even stopped um she wouldn't take the bottle either and it was almost like she was protesting that she wasn't given the attention that she needed as a newborn. So I have no idea how she survived that period because mom said she hardly ate anything. But it was really hard and mom just said, I was so devastated because I thought I'm in this foreign country and my child is going to die here without my family around. And I have no idea how she got through that. Obviously now we've got so many resources around us when people with young children, go through things like this. Um, but it was a really tough period, I'm sure, for my parents and their relationship, because they separated quite shortly after returning from New Zealand. It was a horrible time for everyone involved. Do
1: you have any memory of that time? You were so little, you probably have no memory at all of going through that, that awful... ordeal.
0: Oh, ma'am. The things that I remember, uh, they had a little uh, play school area where kids could go and almost like daycare, they could go and paint and do that kind of stuff. So I remember that, the fun bits of it. I remember getting lollipops every time they had to (laughs) put new catheters in me. But I also remember making friends with some of the kids in my ward and then uh, having them just disappear the next day because they had passed on and lost their fight with cancer. And I've Never, yeah, never fully understood that at that age. I was just like, where did they go? And how are your parents supposed to explain that to a child who's also trying to be strong, in inverted commas, because what is that even as well? Like, how how do you be strong um, as a three to five-year-old?
1: But you recovered. I recovered. Has it left you with any kind of lasting scars?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean... Stunted my growth, Um, so I was always the runt of the pack at school and that subjected me to a lot of bullying but also beforehand going through the actual treatment and losing my hair with chemotherapy. Um, I got bullied a lot for not having hair and laughed at for having a bald head but just being short was something that I really struggled with for a long time because I knew that I wasn't meant to be this short obviously the treatment had stunted my growth in some way and even to this day like I feel like now in my 30s I have a I've I've only just started to accept (laughs) that which is so wild you know you shouldn't you shouldn't care about these things but this is how much things affect kids at that especially at that age where we're very impressionable and you know especially bullying really affects kids at that age.
1: Maybe that's one of those wounds that makes you stronger in the long run. Mm. I mean, you really have to figure out who you are, don't you? And you really have to sort of come to terms with that. Mm. You feel like you're weird, but then you, as you get old, you realise everyone's weird and uh, you sort of arrive at that place a lot quicker than other people do. do you, what do you think about all that, Nareen?
0: Yeah, I mean, quite early on, even though it was it was hard and, you know, I've obviously taken on some trauma from that period, it also gave me a sense of not even a sense, but it created in me this natural mechanism to to just suck it up and, and get things done regardless of how I'm feeling. And I know that can be <laughs> ineffective at some points in your life, but I, it just fueled me on my journey as an, as an artist, you know, because obviously the music industry isn't for the faint hearted. And I've had so many doors and so many people telling me that I can't do this and it's a no and blah, blah, blah. And I've just been able to just stay super focused and go, well, whatever. That's A door closed just means that I've just got to keep going.
1: I mean, in terms of you being fabulous. That's what I mean. I mean, because <laughs> I mean, you realize you can't be sort of like, you know, if you've been through that and you've had lost your hair and what have you, from you go, well, I can't be normal, so I might as well be fabulous.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was definitely an element of of me just embracing how quirky and weird I am um, but there's also a sense of me putting on an armour to go, okay, I need to ruffle my feathers a little bit, especially before I go on stage and, you know, I'm like make my headpiece higher than you know, what does Donna Parton say? She's like the higher the hair, the closer to God um, <laughs> and so this <laughs> is not what she says <laughs> it's kind of like that, it's just like make it more fabulous and more dramatic and more over the top, you know, and, And even though I'm an introvert, I love that drama and I love people looking at me and going, "Oh, look at that, look at what she's wearing. I love it.
1: This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Nairi, you went to Rabaul after you recovered from that childhood bout of cancer. You went; The family went mm. to Rabaul to live for a mm. while. Now, I've never been to Rabaul, but... Mm. It sounds like every bit as dramatic as, as the main island of New Guinea. It's, it's really volcanic. What, what childhood memories do you have of <clears throat> uh, of, the, uh, of seeing Rabaul as, as a little kid?
0: Rabaul was a paradise to me. It represented beauty and just uh, prosperity and just childhood joy. And it's the last, it's, you know, it was always buzzing and there were frangipani trees everywhere. So it's always blooming with vibrant pinks and whites. You know, it boasted one of the world's best um, harbours because it was so sheltered by all the volcanoes. Um, It also had, you know a rich history of having been destroyed during World War II when the Japanese invaded. And so there were all these, you know, incredible tourist attractions with the war relics everywhere. And my mom at the time was working in tourism and so she was able to reveal a lot of that stuff to us, like Japanese bunkers and old guns and all that kind of stuff. But there was just there was just a real buzz with Rebel. And my mom often tells me about how um progressive the East New Britain government was and how they were always at the forefront of change in Papua New Guinea. And so they had this real sense of pride about themselves as a people and their contribution to the the country as well. I mean, they could have quite easily had become their own uh, autonomous state as well because they were just so organised. And there was just, we went to international schools there. And so there was like a really healthy middle class society as well that my parents had entered because of the education that they'd gotten and the jobs that they'd gotten. And so we lived on a hill called Namanula Hill, which is where the Volcanic Observatory is based. And, you know, we were surrounded by judges and lawyers and just people holding, you know, top tier jobs. And so it was a really exciting time, you know, Rabaul was just booming. Um, I'm sure economically as well, you know, they they just bounced back so well from after, you know, the war and they'd come through independence almost seamlessly. I mean, there was definitely some, I guess, some growing pains there for a little bit, but always just an exciting... It was an exciting place to grow up in.
1: Isn't uh, pidgin is the language there, isn't it? And could you speak it when you got there?
0: The local language there is Kwanwa, but obviously Tokpisin no, or pidgin, is the, I guess, the the Creole or the pigeon that the rest of PNG used to communicate with each other. But my father neglected to teach us Kwanawa for some reason. I have no idea, but one of the reasons why we moved there was because mum wanted us to learn how to speak Kwanawa. But unfortunately, that never happened. Most of the kids that we went to school with could speak pigeon, and so we just picked it up, just playing with the next door neighbour. And yeah, just went from being those kids that had just moved from New Zealand with you know very acute Kiwi accents to trying to lose it to fit in and pick up the the local lingo.
1: Rebell, as you said, is a is surrounded by volcanoes, and you mentioned there' was a volcano lookout spot out th- there. it's It's sort of sitting right on a crack in the earth <laughs> there. Mm. Is that an everyday part of life there when you're a kid?
0: Yeah, we'd have tremors quite frequently and it was very much part of living in Rabaul. And no one really thought, oh, the volcano is going to erupt now because it was just like, those there's tremors. There's been tremors for so long. I think the last eruption was in the 70s, I would say. But then obviously leading up to when the eruption happened, it became quite frequent and abnormal for what we'd experienced. And, you know, when it got to that stage, you'd have paintings and crockery falling out of the cupboards and off the walls. and when it got really, really bad, it would just be so hard for you to be standing upright on the ground. You know, I have a memory of one of my aunties holding both me, my brother and my sister holding our hands together and trying to run down the stairs with us and she's falling over and we're bumping into the sides of the railing and hurting our heads and our and literally just crawling to the open area to just gain some kind of safety.
1: Meanwhile, was there a big singing culture in Rebel based around the church or around community groups and the like that you were aware of?
0: In terms of choirs, yes, particularly in Rabaul, they very they very much pride themselves on their church choirs, and I think that's definitely one of the the more beneficial remnants of colonialism. And in terms of like singing, like what I do, there wasn't. I guess a, a strong market for that. There were a few artists who kind of come through the cracks. Like obviously there was the George Telex who's probably one of PNG's most famous oh, yeah. exports. But, you know, there wasn't really a market that could su- sustain you com- uh, commercially or just financially. So most of the singing that I was around was from church choirs, to be honest, and from my grandmother waking up early in the mornings and singing her hymns whilst we were still asleep. And then obviously you'd have, you know, your ceremonial singing as well, which only happened during certain occasions, but it was mostly church, church singing that we were around in Rebel.
1: So you're growing up with this, having this lovely childhood in Rebel, All this is going on all around you. There's plenty of music going on as well. Tell me when you first, in, in 1994 how you got a sense, if there was any at all, that there was something brewing up in the weeks beforehand to the 1994
0: eruption, Nairi? So my parents had separated just before, I think a few months before, if not earlier, and we had remained in Rabaul. My mum had been shipped off to the mainland and... Yeah, it was a Sunday. It was a Sunday night and we had these tremors happening quite frequently. They weren't dying down. They weren't stopping. It got to the point where it felt, felt like the house was like a ship moving up and down. So you could see the floor just like a seesaw motion. And, you know, my at, the, <laughs> at that point, my siblings and I had never been on a roller coaster ever. So we were just like, oh, my God, this is so fun. So we're running really? up and down. Really? Yes. You're
1: going, this is great? This well, is great. Really?
0: This, we were running up and down the hallways going, look at me, Daddy, look. <laughs> oh, God. And our, my, our poor father was trying to keep the crockery in the cupboard and keep things from falling off the wall. And he's just like, guys, what are you doing? Get on the table. <laughs> so it happened. Like we had those tremors happen all night. And then my auntie, who was a midwife at the hospital where my grandmother was based, said, Ben, I'm just really worried now. Um, I'm going to send an ambulance up to you guys and you, guys, you need to get the kids out and take them over to where we are. Um, We all piled into this ambulance and with my dog, we had two dogs. One of them was called Nasty and he refused to get into the ambulance. He stayed and obviously got destroyed by the volcano. I had two uncles who were living with us at the time um, who my father just said, stay here and look after the house. Because usually, historically, when disasters like that happen in PNG, there's always looters that come in to rob houses or shops or whatever for some reason. And so he was like, just stay and guard the house. I'm taking the kids over there. Yeah. And so we just spent the night at my grandmother's place. The tremors weren't as bad over there, but they were still quite frequent. And then the next morning we sat down, no one was sure whether they should go to work or school or whatever. We got into our school uniforms, had breakfast and in PNG in a lot of places, the kitchen is separated from the house. They call it the house cook. And so we were in the house cook eating our breakfast, which would have been like white bread and sugary tea. And then all of a sudden we heard these kids running up and down the main, I guess, village a uh, road saying, the volcano has erupted, it's erupted. Or they were like, mountain bayrap, bayrap, you know, in, which is in, P- in Tokbisin, the volcano has erupted. And then we were like, huh, what's happening? And immediately we stepped outside of the house cook and it looked like basically ash was falling from the sky, um, like snow. And my father was, all I could hear was like, okay, go next door, go to this person. They have a transportation company. See if we can borrow one of their cars. (laughs) I don't know if they ever got that car back, but managed to get a car, a ute, and we all piled in, put all the bread back in the plastic, threw the tea out, took whatever clothes we could fit into a bag and just went out into the main road. road. And as soon as we got out into the main road, just two sides of the road were just exoduses of people just carrying their pigs, dogs, sound systems, anything that they found valuable, they were carrying and just slowly walking out of town. And it was just the most harrowing sight to behold as a child, just this ash pouring down, something we'd never, ever seen or experienced in our lifetime. And these people marching out and there was no panic. People were just like, okay, we're going to start moving. And regardless of what the observatory had said, which was like, guys, it's fine. It's only a stage, whatever. You can still stay in your homes. But everyone was just like, no, it's time to go. Let's go. There was a huge gray mushrooming cloud that just exploded behind us. And we were like, yep, thank goodness we listened to our guts.
1: So you went from being, oh, this is fun and cool, to being properly frightened at this point, I'm sure, Nairi.
0: No, I wasn't. This is the funny thing. Because we felt quite protected by our family. You know, obviously there was a slight kind of like, ooh, um, this seems kind of... It seems kind of uh, not good, but, like, this Best is... Best
1: not stay, that sort of thing <laughs> going, is going on, right? It seems
0: like the right decision right. to make, but, like, this is kind of cool. Like, you could feel that adrenaline and that excitement of, like, this is something in history that I will never, ever forget and something that I can write about later. But, yeah, it was just this huge mushrooming cloud that just kept getting bigger and bigger. And, like, I guess within half an hour to an hour, another volcano had erupted in the direction that we were heading, and so we were caught between these two mushrooming cars going, what the hell do we do? And so we just kept moving. And at one point it started to rain and so the rain mixed with mud and so it was raining mud on all the cars and we were running out of drinking water because all the drivers were trying to use the water to get the mud off their windscreen and it was just like, well, do we save the water or do we know where we're going and don't hit anyone? But we ended up at what they were calling at the time care centres, which were basically refugee camps where people could come and stay until more information had come through. Um, So we ended up at an agricultural school where we got put into a dorm uh, there was about maybe five or six of us and it was completely uncomfortable. The school tuck shop had, had just run out of, of of food and I could overhear my father just saying, look, we can't stay here. The water's out. There's no more food. We're just going to he- have to keep going. And so we kept moving to Kokopo, which is now the the new town centre Post eruption. And that was just diabolical. There were people who were separated from family members, you know, and there were other family members that had caught boats from other smaller islands to get to Kokopo. And, you know, there were just people trying to reconnect other people to their daughters or sons or uncle. It was just mayhem.
1: What about your mum at this point? Like, she, you said she was on the mainland. Presumably she'd heard news of the, the double volcanic eruption on Rabaul at that point. What What did she do when she heard the news?
0: I mean, she's watching everything just pan out on the media, on TV and on the radio, and she has no way of c- contacting us because, one, there are no mobile phones at that point. All the phone lines are down. Um, there's no electricity. Like, there's it's just impossible to find out where her children are. She was she was just in complete panic, you know. And we ended up back up in a village that belongs to my grandfather who's since passed away. And I mean, there was a decision that I overheard my father and my grandmother having the conversation about where, I don't know if it is is, tr- is true, but from what I heard, uh, when your grandfather dies or your husband dies, you kind of sever ties with that side of the family. And so it was a real cultural conundrum for them to go, there's nowhere else we can go. But we know that my husband's family are up in the mountains where it's safer and we're just going to have to do that. So we ended up going up there. And obviously they were very hospitable and gave us a place to stay in, which is where we were holed up for, oh man, I don't even know how long... And then luckily enough, my my mother had sent a message through AM radio. And so there were a lot of families who were doing that, sending messages through talkback radio, just saying, I'm looking for my, my brother, I'm looking for this family member, my name is so-and-so, please get them to call me on this number or get them to... And so my mum sent this message through and we were out somewhere else and one of the family members said... Oh, my gosh, thank goodness you're back. Your mum is trying to reach you and she's sending a chartered aeroplane at this time in this clearing in the forest.
1: <laughs> mum sent in a plane?
0: <laughs> she, yes, yeah, she sent in a plane. <laughs> this clearing in the forest, be there at that time, otherwise you're going to miss it. Um, and so that's what happened. You know, the institute that she was working for, the, <laughs> the Forestry Institute, said, you know, if anyone has family members that are there, we're going to charter a plane to come pick up your family members.
1: And it worked.
0: The and it plane worked. arrived.
1: You were in the right place at the right time, and you got yep. on this this chartered plane.
0: Yeah, wow. and just yeah, shot out of there.
1: Mum to the rescue, eh?
0: God, yeah, they're amazing. So after
1: that, your, your mum remarried, and you relocated to Australia, and mm. you, you came to settle in northern New South Wales. Man, that must have been so quiet compared to the. the busyness and the the volcanic activity and the wildflowers. I mean, it's pretty beautiful in northern New South Wales, but it must have been a lot quieter for you.
0: Oh, man, it was such a culture shock. For one, the first thing I said to my mum was like, mum, where are all the people? And she said, what do you mean? They're in their houses. And that was such such a contrast for me, seeing because most Papua New Guineans live outside. You know, they have their houses, but most of the living is... You see people walking around or sitting outside their houses or, you know, there's street vendors selling their beetle nut or there's smokes or canned Cokes and there's always just a buzz. There's always people outside, you know. No one, no one really spends time in their house other than sleeping or potentially cooking or if you have a TV, maybe they're watching the footy, but most people like to be outside. So when I came to came to Australia I was like, "Whoa, what are they doing in their houses? Why why are they in their houses?" And that was yeah, very representative of the life that, you know, we I mean it was we've had a really great life as well, but it it was definitely a huge contrast not being able to to access family um You know, we become our own tiny little village, me my brother and my sister and my mum and my stepfather. You know, that's our village now and that's so bizarre to me because back in PNG you would have, you know, an auntie, uncles always popping over, your cousins would stay, you know, you'd always be going to your grandmother's for the weekends and, yeah, so bizarre. Tell me
1: about your first solo performance as a singer.
0: My first solo performance was... At Kadena High School in Lismore, I had this incredible music teacher, Mrs Johnston, who showed me a whole gamut of genres of music that I'd never, ever heard that really blew my mind. And the first, she said, do you want to perform for the school assembly um, next week? You know, we can work on a song that you like. And at the time, I was really enamoured by Alicia Keys and just inspired by her being as young as she is, producing, writing, and doing everything by herself. And the song that she, that really skyrocketed rocketed her to fame, which was Fallen, I was obsessed with. And I said, I wanna do this song. So, and I'd never performed in front of anyone. No one had ever told me, oh, your voice is really good. Maybe you can make that into a career. I was just like, I just love doing it. I love how it makes me feel. And performed in front of the whole school. The the school erupted in just like rapturous applause and then I went from being that strange little immigrant kid who always had a hair and braids and baggy jeans and carried a traditional <laughs> PNG bag to school every day to being the girl that sings. And then I mm. realised this could be a thing. If this makes these people feel this way, then maybe I can potentially do this as a career.
1: You've been back to PNG. You've been back to that village near Karoka in the Mm. Eastern Highlands where your mum's from, where your ancestors are from. Mm. Now, are you ready to have reached back into that, into some of the if not the music traditions, just the sound of that place because that place wouldn't sound at all like where you live now, the bird mm. song, the air, the breeze, the, the sound of nature would be very, very different. Are you ready mm. to do that and have you been able to do that, reach back into that, yeah. d- that, that deep past and that deep the, 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 those ancestral spirits that you felt in that part of
0: the mm. world? Look, I, I took a small um, creative group back to PNG in 2017 to research for this album that's been released, Three. And that was the start of a huge journey for me as very much personally, um, but as an artist as well. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to find that would influence the album. But we came back with hours and hours of footage and just so many photographs that we're still trawling through even to this day. But the idea was to to go back and to build on that, and that the plan that me and my husband had was to relocate to PNG in March last year, and then COVID hit. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So oh. it's the only place that I, I dream without boundaries, which is just crazy. I and mean, it kind of makes sense because I'm connected what do you to mean?
1: that. What do you mean? Dream without boundaries?
0: My creativity is, is so much more awake. I just see cl- clearly, mentally, and it really forces you to really look at things in a very microscopic way rather than seeing a full big picture and going, oh, yeah, I can't do that. That's just too much. It's more like, "Ah, oh, look at this bumblebee. I wonder what that would look like as a costume or, like, I wonder what that would look like. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's, it's there's just I find more inspiration in PNG.
1: The song I'm going to play from your album now, it's called Him. This is about your son, isn't it?
0: Mmm. Mm, it is. During the time that I was putting the album together, I got quite sick during my pregnancy and I was in a lot of acute abdominal pain. Uh, The doctors couldn't tell me what was wrong, so I was in and out of hospital for about seven months of my pregnancy, just going through a bit of a trial and error thing with different specialists. And um, they found tumours on my pancreas and my liver, which was a little bit alarming for doctors, obviously, because of my history with cancer. And so it was being monitored closely, but still no one could tell me why this pain was was affecting me the way that it did. And so I was taking so many narcotics, but it got to a stage where both my mum and my husband, Dan, were, you know, I'd be reeling around on the floor in pain, just clutching my sides, just screaming and howling. I said to my husband, I said, I just, this pain feels like it's going to kill me. Either that or I'm going to kill myself because it was just getting just ridiculous. And so we had to have a conversation about what would happen if I didn't make it through the term of the pregnancy or if Nadav, our son, hadn't made it or if we both hadn't made it. So I wrote this song around that time and it was basically a letter that I would have left for Nadav if I hadn't made it.
1: So you've had your beautiful son. He is in the world Mm. now. How are you doing? Are you still in pain?
0: I'm I'm a lot better. You know, I have moments of stress. You know, obviously being in lockdown has had its challenges. And so in moments of stress, the pain kind of rears its head. But it's really just been, I've just been coasting since I had Nadav and they've done multiple operations and procedures. So fingers crossed, fingers crossed it stays that way.
1: I really wish you all the best, Nairi. It's been so lovely speaking with you. I think what you're doing is amazing and really original. And uh, thank you so much.
0: Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me.
1: You've been hearing my conversation with singer-songwriter Nairi from 2021 when she released her album Three. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.